singing. You may take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I think of that song now, I, I actually don't think as much of Ron Hamilton and his struggles as much as the um, time that we had last year about um, January to, to March, January to April in this church. It was a time where we actually sang that song quite often. Um, by certainly by God's design, I was preaching through the book of Job, if you remember. Randy was having his um, eye removed for cancer. Peyton was having several health difficulties at the time. And uh, the Schmitz were still in the fire. And it, it was amazing that um, the Lord had brought about that series in Job at the same time that, uh, well, it was, it was before all of those things began happening that that series had begun, and I had planned it a year before that. And it was just incredible to see how God worked in that time as we were preaching through Job, as this song came up several times throughout those, those um, months. Peyton would give a, a, a testimony later that seeing how Randy handled his circumstances was such a help to her. Uh, we were all encouraging each other, one uh, another in the Lord, as we were learning from Job's suffering. And what a, what a, um, it was a, as you look upon it, it was a sweet time of growth. When you're in it, it's not as sweet. But um, when you look upon it, uh, what a sweet time it was uh, in growing and learning so much about the Lord. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. The title of the message, Precepts and, uh, Principles and Precepts, very vague title. Uh, you notice that we're beginning in, in verse 2. Last week as I preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for those of you that were there in the evening, we did go through all the way through uh, chapter 11 verse 1. For those of you that perhaps may have looked online this week to find those sermons, I'm sorry they're not yet online. We had some audio difficulties with the sermon and so I'm going to have to re-preach them. And uh, this week was not a week conducive to me getting that done. So I'm going to re-preach at least the evening sermon and then we'll get those online as soon as possible if you would like them. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 is where we will begin this morning. And in 1 Corinthians 11, there is a fairly strong transition in the epistle. For several chapters now, Paul has been focusing on aspects of liberty and responsibility under grace. We've talked about that uh, quite a bit now. Last time we were together, you recall, we heavily emphasized, as Paul heavily emphasized, the necessity of denying self and of magnifying the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ through our actions. And that was really the thrust of the idea of liberty. That we are, uh, in our liberty, we are perhaps sacrificing our liberties or living within our liberties as necessary in order to bring maximum glory to God and maximize the testimony of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 31 was kind of the verse, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So it really has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with you glorifying God, whether you're eating or drinking, whether you're going a place or not going a place, whether you're saying that thing or not saying that thing, whether you're watching that on TV or not watching that on TV, um, whether you're... Regardless, what you're doing and what you're not doing ought to be founded upon the reality that God's glory is key. 
And as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11 is a bit of a transition. Look with me at verse 2. You see the first verse, the first word, if you're, if you're using a King James translation this morning at least, in chapter 11, verse 2 is now. And then if you jump to verse 17 of chapter 11, you'll find that the first word in that verse is now. And then if you look in chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see again, the first word of that verse is now. In each of these cases, Paul is introducing something different, a new lesson, a new correction, a new rebuke. So he's laid a foundation and he says, okay, this foundation's laid. My dad and I have been doing a lot of work this week. Uh, we've been uh, on the house and, and so we'll, we'll do something. We'll get something done and we'll say, okay, we just finished that part of the project. Now what? Now that we finished this, how are we going to build on that? What are we going to do? What's the next step? Now, now that we have finished laying the foundation, now what do we need to put on top of it? And so we're going to see these nows. Verse 2, verse 17, chapter 12, verse 1. And each one's kind of a layer. Each one's kind of a new application. Each one's a new thought. Paul's not setting aside that which has already been, what he's already taught. But we're going to go in some different directions here. And you'll see this morning that what we're going to talk about is, is indeed rooted in liberty um, still. These things will have relation to one another, but contextually, there's going to be a little bit less relevance than what we've seen in chapters 5 through uh, 10 with chapters 11 and following. You don't need to know 5 through 10 quite as important uh, or as deeply in order to understand what Paul's teaching in 11 and following. And today's topic, verses 2 through 16, very relevant to the concepts of liberty I mentioned. And in fact, the final verse of our text today, verse 16, will make mention of the fact that there is some flexibility in what Paul is teaching today. That there is some variability. More than simple precepts, Paul is going to present principles here which ought to be followed. He'll also present the cultural way that the believers of first century Corinth should apply those principles to their lives through cultural expectation, through perception among the world, and specifically how they can maintain that good testimony that he's talked about already. The topic today used to be one that was fairly understood, read, obeyed, expected in the church. Then the topic became a controversy probably 50 years ago. And now it's simply ignored by most Christians. As if it was intended by God for a different time and a place, a different culture, but not our own. Not relevant for today. And I encourage you to prepare your hearts to think differently about today's sermon. To prepare your hearts to hear, to understand, and to apply, and to obey as best you can, and as best we can understand what the Word of God has to tell us. We're heading down this similar path with some other issues today in the church where the church, it used to be default. And then there's controversy and in some areas, in some doctrines, in some standards, in some practices. We're in the controversy phase. And that controversy is going to give way as the church compromises to where we're just going to ignore certain parts of Scripture in order to not have controversy anymore. We're just going to pretend like they don't exist. This is one of those areas. So let's look in chapter 11, verse 2. 
Paul says this. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. We must always remember that the breakups in our Bible are, di- are, are not divinely inspired. When you see chapter breaks, those are not divinely inspired chapter breaks. When you see verse divisions, those, are not, those were not given by God. In fact, when the original Greek was written, we talked about this a little bit on Tuesday night, there were no chapter breaks, there were no paragraph breaks, there weren't even spaces between the words. It was like a big, long word. Because manuscript material was expensive, hard to come by, difficult. So they're not going to waste time with spaces. Waste, waste space, I mean, with spaces. They're not going to waste space with gaps. They're going to write and pack as much in as they can to use as little material as possible because it was hard to come by. And so when we look at the chapter divisions, what we're seeing there is men in the church in years gone by who have broken things up as they interpreted, as they perceived breakups in the text. The references are given so that it's easy to reference the text, right? That's why it's called a reference. And they're also given in order that um, you can make it easier to memorize and in order that you can, you can perceive a little bit of, of topic breakups. This is one of those chapters where I kind of wish the chapter break wasn't there. Uh, at least where it is. Because I think that, cha- and this is how I preached it, I think that chapter 11, verse 1, really goes far more in line with chapter 10 than it does with chapter 11. Paul just gave all of this stuff about liberty and conscience. And remember, he's used himself as an example many times in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And now he says, be a follower of me as I'm a follower of Christ. It makes sense that it would go right along with what he's saying in chapters 5 through 10. And then the fact that we have this word now shows that he's kind of switching gears a little bit. So that's why I'm starting in chapter 11, verse 2 today, not chapter 11, verse 1. I preached 1 at the end of last, and we'll start in chapter 11, verse 2. And you notice there, Paul says that he's praising them. When we speak of ordinances in the church realm, we today talk about two ordinances in the church. We talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, by ordinances, we speak of those things which Jesus Christ demonstrated and He commanded the church to continue. He demonstrated these things to the church. He said, church, you should continue doing these things. These are not suggestions. We would not say that the Lord's Supper is a suggestion. It's something God commanded us to do. We would not say baptism after salvation is a suggestion. It's a step of obedience. However, that's not what Paul is speaking of when we read this word ordinances in chapter 11, verse 2. When Paul is speaking of it, and you can see it in, in the, the Greek word as I've defined it there, he's speaking of that which is transmitted from one person to the next. Speaking not of biblical command necessarily, but rather of oral tradition, ritual, instructions that the apostles gave to the church, not as law, but as something that they thought would benefit the church or would be helpful as the church applies the precepts of Scripture, the principles of Scripture, we would call these today standards. We all have different standards in this room. We found those standards upon the same foundation. God is holy. God is orderly. God is just. God is right. God is love. 
we know who God is. God has expectations placed upon us. We are to be holy. We are to be righteous. Um, we are to let no corrupt communication come out of our mouths. We are to think on those things which are right and good. We are to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Those are all expectations. And then we as individuals say, okay, in my life, how can I bring about, how can I ensure, how can I f- fit boundaries into my life, build fences to make sure I don't cross God's lines? And so some of us build different fences. Some of us say, you know what? I don't want to be tempted with what's on television, so I'm not going to own a television. Or there's not enough good on television anyway, so I'm just not going to own one. Others say, I'm going to watch TV, but I'm going to put boundaries on that TV. Certain channels, certain ratings on movies, different standards. And we are therefore taking the principles that we're to not let no corrupt communication come out of our mouths, that we are to think on those things that are good, that we are to guard our hearts, keep our hearts with all diligence, and we are each going to decide for ourselves or for our families, fathers, how it is that we can best apply that principle, apply that expectation to our individual lives and to our individual families. And so there's going to be different standards in this room laid upon the same foundation. As Paul is preaching about these ordinances it will become clear to you that these are things that the apostles... This is not the foundational stuff. The apostles have taught that. They've written that down. It's there. But these are things that Paul and Barnabas came to Corinth and they said, you know what? In order to manifest God's glory, to be a good testimony, in order to do all of those things that God has commanded you to do, I think this is something that you should do. This would be a good way for you to go about doing this so that you can manifestly um, show the commands of God and be a good testimony and make sure that you have the proper boundaries. Uh, As I read the text, that is what I believe we're dealing with this morning. You will find people, if you read commentaries, that disagree with me. As a matter of fact, you'll find Bibles that disagree with me. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in in, in a little bit. There's a, a translation discrepancy between the King James and other versions that we're going to come across today. But I I believe as we look at the text that this is the case. Paul is speaking of these traditions and as we think about that, we recognize that this has fallen out of fashion in the church today. The postmodern church, primarily among what we would call the millennials, have by and large forsaken church tradition, ritual, and the standards of their parents. In fact, this is the general attitude of the church right now to cast off any religious roots or traditional roots. But in these verses, Paul commends the church He praises them that they have kept these traditions, these standards, these expectations that the apostles have suggested to them. That being said, we ask the question, what are proper church rituals? What are proper church traditions? Well, these are church practices that are performed religiously, we would say, and they're founded upon the commands and the principles of Scripture. The church takes the commands of Scripture, takes the principles of Scripture, extends them naturally into various directions in life and in practice in order to provide a framework within which God's people are taught how to conduct their lives in a manner that pleases God. They are not in themselves the essentials of faith and practice, 
but only reflect in the church setting how that church has personally chosen to apply the essentials of faith and practice in order to facilitate worship. Now, as such, in this definition of ordinances, what we would call traditions or standards, our church has many of these, does it not? As a matter of fact, our church probably has more than many churches, particularly in this area. Uh, Your pastor dresses nicely on Sundays. Many of the people in our church dress up to come to church. This is not a command in the Bible. This isn't even necessarily a principle that we see taught directly in the Scriptures. But we all know that God is a great King. He is worthy of honor. And throughout the centuries, the church has chosen to reflect honor to God by dressing nicely on during their meeting, during their time of, of meeting and worship. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It helps frame our mindset for worship. We're doing something different. We're doing something special. It helps us get into the mindset for what we're doing. It creates a clear distinction between the church and the world. We are going to dress up and come to church. We are going to do this distinct thing. Even as we're getting ready to go to church, right? People are looking at me, walking around in my cowboy hat and my suit. And they know where I'm going. They don't think I'm going to a rodeo. They know I'm going to church. Because it's Sunday. And the Wicklers are dressed up. They know we go to church. And so these are things that aren't commands in Scripture, but these are things that are good. These these are things we want. So it's a tradition that's beneficial, so we do it. We haven't cast it out simply because it's religion. Cast it out simply because it's tradition. Because it's beneficial. Because there's something to it. Same thing with the standing for the reading of Scriptures. Have you ever noticed that we do that? We stand when we read the Scriptures... However, I don't have you stand when I just read it while I'm preaching. Contradiction? Hypocrisy? Well, no. Not really. It's not a command or a precept in Scripture that you, we must stand. We do see it, and pastors have preached this before, we do see it exampled in Scripture. We see in Nehemiah that the, that the, the people stood when the, the Scriptures were read, but... Um, I remind you that they didn't just stand for the reading. They stood for the expounding as well. So if we were to actually see that as a command, then you would have to stand for my entire preaching, which you knowing your pastor would be kind of rough, wouldn't it? Uh, that would be a long time standing. Not like Israel. Israel stood for six or eight hours as they listened to the reading of Scripture on those days. They would read all day. And they would expound upon it all day and teach all day. And the people would stand out of reverence for God's Word. However, we have found it beneficial that when we're doing a focused reading, like our scripture reading time, we reflect reverence to the Word of God by asking those that are able to stand. It's not sin not to. It's simply something that has been put in place by the church that is beneficial. It it reflects a good thing, that we honor the Word of God. It's not hard to stand. It's not that inconvenient. And if we can reflect a little extra honor upon the Word of God in our mindset, perhaps then let's do it, right? And so we have many of these things. The list could go on, but you get the point. It's not wrong, and in many ways uh, is very beneficial for the modern church to maintain the traditions and the rituals of time past as long as those traditions are not errant or elevated to the standard of commandment. You're not saved if you don't dress up, if you don't stand, you know, those sorts of things. We We can't go there. 
But these are good things. And so Paul, apparently, according to this verse, had delivered to them several oral instructions. And he says, I praise you that you have kept these ordinances that we've delivered. Now, what are all of these? We really don't know. We only know of the one that he mentions here. Maybe several of the other things that he's spoken of already in the book were in part ordinances, that oral tradition, things that they suggested. He doesn't label them as such. But the one we're going to look at today, the one that he mentions in this text, is the ordinance of head coverings upon women. That's what 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2-16 through is about. Head coverings upon women. Now you look around, and as far as this church is concerned, there's no woman in this room that is wearing a head covering that has, uh, with the exception of Andrea and her hat. Very good. Thank you, Dad. Pointed it out. But there is, is, is no um, expectation in this church, certainly, that there would be a head covering upon women. Why is that when we see teaching on it? Well, as I told you, things have fallen into confusion, debate, controversy, and eventually just ignored. So we're going to talk about it today. We're going to seek to understand it and where we fall into this. Should we? Expect the women to have head coverings. Is it wrong not to? Are all the women of the church disobeying biblical command? Because they're not wearing head coverings. Good questions. Let's talk about it. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Paul begins his teaching on this topic by discussing the biblical principle that the tradition or instruction is meant to reinforce. He's starting at the foundation and building up. Always a good thing to do. Good thing to do with your children. Good thing to do with your grandchildren. Good thing to do in a church. Start at the foundation and build up. He reminds the church of the doctrine of biblical headship, that the head of every man is Christ. Christ, man, at the head of every woman is the man. Woman, and then the head of Christ is God. So if we were to put it in a hierarchy, it would have God at the top, then Christ, then man, then woman. God the Father is supreme, worthy of all submission and reverence. Jesus Christ is God, but He is God in flesh. The Scriptures tell us that He has veiled His deity as He came to earth, or He did veil His deity as He came to earth. Philippians 2 tells us He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was indeed equal with God, but that He humbled Himself that he made himself of no reputation, that he willingly submitted himself and humbled himself to God the Father so that he might be an example for all of us to do the same, so that he might bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, might live through him. As such, we have God, then Christ, and then Christ is man's head. By virtue of Jesus Christ's payment on the cross of Calvary for the sins of all men, we are bought with a price, the Scriptures tell us, and are therefore spiritually obligated by grace unto spiritual submission to Christ. And then finally, the Scriptures tell us that the head of the woman is the man. Woman, having been placed in a position of submission by God's design and decree as far back as the Garden of Eden, created to act toward men in a manner that is submissive, following the man as he follows Christ, as Christ followed God. That is 
that's the doctrine of biblical headship, we call it, that hierarchy. And so Paul reminds them of this doctrine of biblical headship. He reminds them of the reality um, that you have God, then Christ, then man, then woman. And then he says in verse 4, And every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. So we know that this is about headship, the necessity of reflecting proper headship. And Paul says this, that a man who approaches either in corporate prayer or corporate speaking, having his physical head covered, dishonors his spiritual head. Now who did Paul just say the spiritual head of man is? Christ, right? That Christ is the spiritual head of the man. And so when a man... If a man were to come into the corporate setting having his head covered, in other words, in a manner of submission, a submissive manner, he actually, not not to Christ, but in a physical sense, we'll talk about that, he is actually dishonoring the one who gave him authority. The one who made him the, the leader and the authority. He is dishonoring his head who is Christ. Because Christ is the head of the church, Him not being with us, He's at the right hand of the Father, men are designated, delegated by God as the highest level of earthly authority in the corporate church. Men show their submission to Christ in the church through obedience to the Word of God, but they are not to play a submissive role in the church assembly. They are to play a leadership role. The men of the church are intended to lead the church into worship, lead the church into understanding. And for a man to approach these functions with the cultural signs of human submission is to dishonor Jesus Christ who gave him the responsibility of leadership and authority. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say, conversely, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all as if, one, as if she were shaven. Culturally speaking, then, the opposite is also true. The woman is intended by God to be submissive in the assembly. Notice here, notice here, the text does imply that in the New Testament church, women were given the right both to pray and to speak. He's not saying that they shouldn't be praying or shouldn't be speaking. They were given the right to pray and to speak, but not to usurp authority over the men. Now, now let me just say we're not speaking here of teaching men and preaching. They were not given that right, and we know that from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, which tells us this. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. This is to be in silence in an authoritative manner. So the woman was allowed to speak in the assembly, similar to what we might call today um, testimonies, sharing what the Lord has taught, um, sharing what they are learning. To pray in the assembly, they were given uh, the, the privilege of doing so. We know that they were not allowed to teach or preach because of 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. However, they were certainly encouraged to be a part of the corporate assembly as it pertained to speaking and praying. 
we should also take note that the manner in which the woman was expected to conduct herself in the assembly is what is in focus here. Paul states clearly that a woman who would pray or speak in the assembly without having the cultural marks of submission to male authority were women who were dishonoring their head. Now, the man who prays uh, uh, covered dishonors his head, who he said was Christ. The woman who prays uncovered is dishonoring her head, who he said is the man. Now, if we look in Ephesians chapter 5 and we correlate, we understand that, in fact, when a woman is married, her head is her husband. So for a woman to usurp that authority, to, to um, act in an unsubmissive manner in the corporate assembly, is to dishonor her husband. To reflect poorly upon his leadership, upon his authority. To, if we can use a modern vernacular, to wear the pants in the relationship. If, if you've ever seen a man who is... If you've ever seen a couple and it's quite clear that, as we would term in the modern vernacular, the woman wears the pants in the relationship, it's not a very flattering thing for that man. Nobody looks at that man and says, wow, he's a good man. His wife's in charge. He's a good leader. No, his wife's in charge. And it's that flavor that when she is usurping authority, when she is praying or speaking in a manner that is not reflecting submission, she's reflecting poorly. She's dishonoring her husband. In the same way that a man, when he is not reflecting proper leadership and authority, is dishonoring Christ. And by the way, if you look at biblical headship, it's a hierarchy. So if the woman's dishonoring the man, then she's also dishonoring Christ. Then she's also dishonoring God. In the same way, if, if God is dishonoring Christ, he's, or if a man is dishonoring Christ, he's dishonoring God. That's how headship works. It's how a hierarchy works. Right? The buck has to stop somewhere and it's with God. Like in a business. If one man doesn't do his job, the next man gets in trouble for not doing his job and making the guy do his job. And the next man gets in trouble for not making the guy make the guy do his job. Right? Until the guy at the top who has to answer to his investors. And they say, why aren't you making your employees do their job? And so the guy at the top has to take all the responsibility. Well, that's God in this sense. God is the one that we dishonor anytime we dishonor any of our authorities because we're dishonoring God who's commanded us to obey them. So it would appear that culturally speaking, women were not expected to have head covering as a rule in Corinth. The women were not necessarily always walking around the city of Corinth with head coverings on. However, the head covering was a manifest sign of submission. And it would appear that, culturally speaking, a woman with a shaved head would be doing something culturally unacceptable as a brand of perhaps disgrace among women. As you look back in culture, you could see many of these things. Many times the temple prostitutes had shaved heads. It was a disgrace. Uh, people would know a temple prostitute because she would, be, she would have a shaved head. There are other cultural things that we could look at. Perhaps the women were expected to wear head coverings out in public, but when they came into the assembly, they said, well, we're all equal in Christ anyway, right? And so they take their head covering off, and perhaps Paul was speaking to that. Not quite sure all of the cultural implications 
of what was going on here. We can, we can pick and read history and kind of find some ideas out, but can't be dogmatic on it. So, however, what we do know is that for a woman to refuse a head covering as a participant in the corporate worship setting would be for her to recognize no headship and thus dishonor God's design for her. And it was a shameful thing for her to act so in the church. As shameful for her to, take, to not have a head covering in the church as it would be for her to be out in public with a shaved head. That's what Paul is saying here. It is as dishonoring and as shameful for her not to reflect that cultural sign of submission in the church as it would be for her to go out into public and have the cultural shame of a shaved head or a shorn head. Verse 6, he continues, he says, for, it is, for if the woman be not covered, let her be shorn. She might as well be shorn. But if she be, but if it be, excuse me, a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So disgraceful did Paul regard the usurping of biblical headship in the church that he flat out says in verse 6 that she, she could not be, she could not act in a more culturally disgraceful manner if she shaved her head than she's doing when she's coming into the assembly and not covering her, not showing the cultural signs of, of biblical submission, not covering her head. But if it is indeed culturally shameful for a woman to have a shaved head, which it was in both Jew and Gentile societies, then they should understand just how ecclesiastically shameful, we might say, or shameful it was in the church, for a woman to, to assert a level of autonomy and authority in the church where she is casting off the authorities, the expectation of submission on her, and she is claiming leadership or claiming authority in the church. Paul goes on to explain his words, his reasoning in verse 7. He says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Paul says, It is expected and natural that a man would not cover his head since in order of authority, the man is the highest of earthly creations. We know from Psalm 8 that man is made a little lower than the angels, but they're not an earthly creation, they're a heavenly creation. So as far as earthly created beings go, man is at the top of the list. We're at the top of the pecking order. The woman, however, was made specifically for mankind. This doctrine goes all the way back to the creation account in Genesis 3, where God said that it is not good for man to be alone, so He created woman out of the man as the man's helpmeet. She was created for man. So as man reflects the glory of God as he submits himself to God in obedience, the woman reflects the glory of the man as she submits herself to him as God intended. We've talked about these things before. This should not necessarily be anything new to you. This is biblical headship. This is difficult for perhaps women to hear in this age because they've had feminism taught to them for generations now. But this is the reality of biblical headship. He goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The woman came out of the man, God having taken the rib of Adam to make Eve. The woman was created for the man, God having made Eve specifically as a helpmeet for Adam. And it is thus for this reason, Paul says, that the woman ought to cover her head when she is participating in the corporate assembly. 
Paul says in verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. As we follow the thrust of the argument, anytime a woman speaks in the assembly, it is expected, whether it's prayer or testimony, it is expected that she would demonstrate that she is doing so under the authority of her husband, or if she's not married, her father, or if he's not in the church, then the leaders of the church. Not against or with disregard to the authority of the men of the church. That's, the, that's what the issue boils down to. That she is exercising her right to speak and to pray in the assembly underneath the authority of the church through father and church leadership or husband and church leadership. And as we consider verse 10, the question arises in particular, well, what is this about because of the angels? What do the angels have to do with anything here? Why does it say that she ought to have power or that covering, that authority on her head because of the angels? Here, Paul has been speaking of headship, the roles of authority, and then he mentions that because of the angels, a woman is intended to submit. Well, there is a debate as to what this particular passage means with many strange ideas. There's a lot of really strange ideas that come out of this passage about the influence of women over the natural and the supernatural. There are ideas that, well, the demons are, are uh, encouraged in their demonic activity if the woman is usurping authority in the church. All sorts of things that we really don't see anything in Scripture that pertains to it. However, there are a couple of, of good theories out there as to what this could mean. Real possibilities. There are some who would say that the word here, you'll notice that the word, angelos, actually can mean angel or messenger. So it could refer to a human messenger, not just a spiritual being. And so, that being a valid translation, there are some that believe that this could be speaking of an earthly elder or an earthly pastor or the... the um, elders, pastors, deacons in the church that would be benefited from the submission of women. And so he could be saying here that you ought to cover your head or be in a position of submission because of the messengers, those who are labeled as messengers to the church. This is not necessarily outside of the realm of biblical interpretation in Scripture either as you consider the letters to the angels of the seven churches in Revelation. There are many who believe that the angels of the seven churches in Revelation were the pastors of those churches, the messengers to those churches. And so, uh, depending on how we interpret Revelation 2 and 3, we could see some precedent for the idea that these angels are the messengers to the church. And this is possible. It would indeed benefit the elders of the church that the women would act in submission. However, it might seem a little strange in the church context, or in the context for this, this to be the case. Um, the second possibility, and both of these are valid, the other idea that I saw that I thought, well, that, that, that would work out, is the idea that their submission would directly affect the angels which worship in the presence of God. We know from Isaiah chapter 6 that the angels, that the seraphim that are before God are in God's presence, they fly with two of their wings, but with their other four wings, they're covering their feet and they're covering their, their faces. They are not even unwilling to uncover their faces before God as a show of submission and humility. 
So it may very well be, it could possibly be that, that the angels in heaven as they worship around the throne of God, uh, knowing that there are many angels who are aware of what's going on on the earth, as they are in abject submission to God and to the, ordinance of, uh, is of, uh, the ordinances of God, excuse me, um, could be really appalled at such brazen disrespect uh, to God's plan. So that's the other possibility that um, it would be the angels in heaven and, and that one might seem somewhat valid as well. Both interpretations are out there. There's some other ones which are perhaps less reasonable um, or one that I haven't heard of yet uh, that has, or perhaps one that hasn't even been proposed yet that might actually be uh, the correct reason why um, angels is being mentioned there. For all that Paul is emphasizing the submissive role of women, however, as we look at these verses, this is not to exclude the reality that both genders have a great need for each other. It's not just women that need men. It's not just women who um, have that submissive need, nor is it a reality that men have no responsibility toward women. Verses 11 to 12 make this clear. Look at them with me. Paul says, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. In the Lord, both men and women are of inestimable, inestimable value. Excuse me. And while men and women have been given different roles in society, different roles in family, different roles in the church, Yet they are equal as created beings in the eyes of God and they are equal, spiritually speaking, in the eyes of God. We spoke um, of this not too long uh, ago in our family series. Men and women both have responsibilities to each other. The man has as much responsibility toward the woman or toward his wife as the wife has toward the man. It's different, but the responsibility is still very much there. And so, yes, while the woman came out of the man, the woman was created for the man... Men, we must never forget that God also designed it so that the man came from the woman. I guarantee you there's not a man in this room that cannot credit a woman for his life. Because she bore him. She carried him. She birthed him. Every man in this room came from a woman. So while... Without the man, the woman never would have existed. Without women, men could not continue to exist. But in contrast to the difference of origins between the man and the woman, Paul says at the end of verse 12, but remember, all things are of God. All things are of God. Which means God is the least common denominator of of the man and the woman. He is the one who really matters in all of this. Just like we talked about with our liberty. Eat the meat, don't eat the meat. Responsibility um, to be a good testimony either way because it's all about God. It's kind of the same thing. Man, woman, different roles in society, different roles in the church, but you know what? You're both created of God with a purpose. You have a, a place. You're special. You are not... Women are not objects. Men are not something super special whereas women ought to be put down. They're all of God. They're all created. In the eyes of God, they're both of inestimable value. So what all of this means is that this has nothing to do with women being inferior 
or weak or anything of the sort. We've talked about this, we've talked about this many times. The scriptures do not paint women as inferior. They don't get, call women objects. Any religion that has the woman as an object or the woman as inferior to the man is either misinterpreting the Bible or is not using the Bible. Because biblical Christianity sees women as elevated, sees women as special, sees women as something to be cared for and loved and cherished and appreciated. And any man who is not acting that way toward his wife is not following the biblical expectations of God. Because before God, every man is, is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. It's about headship. It's what we're talking about. Headship and submission. And more specifically in this context, it's about a cultural opportunity for the women to reflect their inward hearts of submission when they participate in the assembly. So let's look at verse 13. Paul says this. He says, Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? We saw this last week too at the beginning of chapter 10. He said, You be the judge. You, I'm speaking unto you as wise men. Judge ye what I say. He says the same thing here. You be the judge. I'm appealing to your spiritual knowledge, your understanding of, of the world around you, your understanding of biblical headship to, to substantiate what I'm saying here. Judge in your own assemblies. Is it appropriate for a woman to pray to God without that veil of submission? When a woman stands up in the church claiming some level of autonomy and authority, doesn't it feel inappropriate? And even today, you might get used to it, but when you see women teachers, women preachers, women pastors, isn't there something that chafes? When you see maybe a male pastor, but you, it's very clear that the women run the church, isn't there something that chafes? There's something in your spirit that... Something wrong there. What's going on here? He says, judge for yourselves. Is it comely that women would pray unto God uncovered? Verse 14, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? Doesn't even nature describe the very thing that, that we're exhibiting? Isn't there even a natural feeling built within man that substantiates the spiritual teaching I'm giving you today? That is a shameful thing for a man to have long hair, a manifest sign of submission, and in and of itself, in a manner of speaking, a head covering. Isn't it naturally within us to expect men to have short hair? This isn't simply there out of society or cultural conditioning, folks. By the testimony of the Word of God, this is by, in us by nature. That we would, that is normal to, to expect men to have shorter hair. And that men with long hair, it's a disgrace to him. It's a shame to him. It's unnatural. And it's unnatural because whether we believe it or not, hair length does make a spiritual connection to us within the concept of submission. Isn't that weird? We'll continue talking about it. Maybe you'll, you'll uh, disagree with me. Culture would want you to, but I'm, I'm preaching the text. 
I'm trying to preach it properly. On the contrary, Paul says, even nature itself reveals that if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. Verse 15. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Why is it that the woman having long hair, that this is a glory to her? Because her hair becomes a natural covering, reflecting the God-honoring concepts of biblical submission. Now, there are those who have read verse 15, that the hair is regarded as a type of covering, and believe that the head covering Paul is teaching that the women need to wear is simply long hair. They say, well, you see, Paul has given the long hair for a covering, so that's the head covering he's talking about. So we don't need head coverings, we just need to have hair. And the hair is our covering. I would disagree with that statement. Within this scenario, it would be expected that Paul was speaking against, uh, that what Paul was speaking against was short hair on women if long hair was a covering. And I say again, if long hair was the covering he was speaking of, then what he's actually preaching against is short hair on women. He's not preaching. He's not telling them to cover their heads. He's telling them to grow out their hair. Long hair would be a covering. And he makes a clear distinction between the head not being covered and the head being shaven here. And it's for this reason that I think this theory seems unlikely. Because Paul was speaking about something that the women were, were not doing in the assembly. He was not speaking... Uh, cutting a hair is a pretty big deal. He's speaking of something that it seems to be able to be remedied. He's speaking of um, the contrast between a woman having a long hair and not having long hair, and if she's um, or having long hair and being shaven. And if she doesn't have her head covered, then she might as well be shaven. Well, if she doesn't have her head covered, then she kind of... And if it, long hair was the covering, then her hair is already short. She's kind of already there. Why is he saying this is a greater disgrace or it might as well be a greater disgrace? So I think culturally speaking, textually speaking, we cannot make the assumption that, the, that the, the long hair is the head covering he's speaking of. I'm sorry if I didn't explain that well. But just as Paul extends the principle of headship by distinguishing between the uncovered and covered heads in the church, so too he's extending this idea in verses 14 and 15 that that even nature, there is a visible manifestation that shows that a woman wants to, by nature, have a covering. And men, by nature, gravitate toward not having a covering. Short hair, shaved head, bald head, which is the way your pastor is going to not be covered here in a few years. And so there's this natural inclination within our spirits for the woman to cover herself, her head, with hair, and for a man to keep his short. That natural inclination Paul is presenting here as a natural evidence of why it is he, he is upping the ante that in the corporate worship setting, women ought to reflect biblical submission in physical ways. I don't believe that hair is the head covering for those reasons. And then he says in verse 16, and this is unique, and then we'll apply. But, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So Paul has just spent 15 verses 
14 verses. Praising God's people for keeping the ordinances and calling upon God's people to maintain this oral teaching of the women wearing head coverings in the church setting when they're speaking and when they're praying. He took time to shore up this particular aspect of tradition in the body of Christ. The cultural method that the apostles had taught whereby women were able to exercise this external show of submission was through external head coverings. And now, it seems apparent that the head covering was considered by Paul and recognized by the church to be a tradition supported by principles of submission, but not the actual act of submission itself. And this makes sense, does it not? We know that a woman could put something on her head and still be just as unsubmissive in her heart as ever. I often um, spoke of this in the context of when I was down at Christian college, there was a rule that the the ladies had to have knee-length skirts and that was for the sake of modesty. And when I would preach on this or teach on this or, or bring it up among the guys in the dorms or in whatever setting it was, I would say, we all know that a woman having a skirt that goes down to her knees is not inherently going to make her modest. It's not going to change her heart. It's not going to change her attitude. It may not even change her modesty based on how she carries herself and how tight it is and all of those sorts of things. In the same manner, it's not that a woman places something on top of her head and immediately she becomes a submissive woman. And so what we see here is Paul reflecting the reality that this is not necessarily about the cultural consideration at hand. The cultural show of submission. This is about the principle of submission. If, and so he states here, in the King James at least, if there were a situation where this custom created nothing but anger and disunity, it's something that can be abandoned. Not that biblical submission should be abandoned, but that in certain circumstances, because of our liberty in Christ, a woman should be able to still function in the assembly without the head covering, as long as she is properly manifesting submission. That's what he says. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom. Neither the churches of God. And notice he calls it a custom here. He calls it a tradition. He doesn't call it law. He doesn't call it command. While the church would then need to perhaps take extra steps to ensure that the women, uh, the women in the midst are reflecting a spirit of submission to authority... Paul says, if, if this is a content, an issue of contention, it, we don't even have the custom. It's done. It's gone. It's over. Pretend like it's not there. It's probably worth noting that there are other translations that completely change the meaning of this text. The NIV and the New English translation, uh, probably among others as well, translate it this way. If anyone intends to quarrel about this, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. Read what what this one says and then listen to what I read here. If anyone... This is the New English translation. If anyone intends to quarrel about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So as I was reading a commentary, and my commentary is keyed into the NIV, one of my commentary sets, as he was talking about this, he said basically Paul saying, if somebody has a problem with this, you need to tell them, the apostles have decreed this. This is what we do. You need to, you need to 
fall in line because this is what the apostles have decreed. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying in the King James. In the King James, Paul is saying, if there's a problem here, you can abandon this. In the other versions, according to that ver- the other versions, Paul is saying, if someone has a problem, you need to tell them to get over it because this is what we've decreed and this is what the churches do. That's a big change, folks. And we've, uh, I, I have attempted through the, the new members class, through various aspects, to show you why we believe that the text behind the King James Version is a superior Greek text. Well, we believe that the other texts have introduced corruptions that um, I certainly am not comfortable with. And so somebody reading these two translations, well, you know what? They mean the exact opposite thing. Is God's Word inspired? Has God really given us His Word today? Well, what happens when we read two English translations of the same Bible and they mean the exact opposite? This is why we stand on the text. Not the King James itself inherently, but the text behind it. Because there are differences. And we, we need to make a choice. And as we look at history, as we look at the church, church history, as we look at, at what God has done in the church, we see precedent to believe that the text behind the King James Version of our Bibles is a much purer text. So we'll side with the King James on, in this church on this issue. And, and, uh, and I think if you were to zoom out and consider context, doesn't it make sense that Paul has just spent what we would, in our breakup, six chapters teaching on liberty? And then he says, and then he starts talking about a tradition. And he says, but you know what? Just like I talked about with eating meat offered to idols, just like I talked about with marriage, these are liberty issues. And you should do it. It's good for you to do it. You need to reflect biblical submission, just like any liberty. It doesn't change the principles. But you have a little bit of wiggle room as to how you live out that principle in your life. So Paul is not asserting that this custom is doctrine. Rather, he states the opposite, that this is a proper and beneficial tradition used in the church at the recommendation of the apostles for the support of the doctrine of biblical headship, which is command, which cannot change because it's taught dogmatically in the Scriptures. So, let's apply these truths this morning. Application number one, women have the privilege of participating in corporate worship as a submissive woman under male authority. It's important to highlight, first of all, that which was taken for granted in the text, that women are allowed to speak in the assembly of believers. Now, we'll not go into the other passages on this topic today. If you want to find out all of the passages that speak on women's role in the church, I have a three-part series that I preached very early on. I don't think anyone in this that's here today, was there when I preached it. It's a three-part series. It's online. It's called um, Women's Role in the Assembly. And I teach through every passage of Scripture having to do with women's role in the assembly. If you want to listen to those messages, they're online, LegacyBaptistChurch.net. Now, we, at Legacy Baptist Church, we do allow women to pray corporately as well as to speak, give testimonies and prayer requests and those sorts of things. These actions are appropriate Granted, they are done with the approval of and under the authority of the men of the church. In the case of a married man or a married woman, 
her husband, and then, of course, the pastor of the church. In the case of a young woman or an unmarried woman, uh, the approval of her father and the pastors of the church. And then in the case of um, any other situation, the approval would rest exclusively with the with the officers of the church, the pastor and the church officers, the elders, we might say, pastors and deacons. And so we, we exercise that here already. We have that established. That's why we, we do what we do. That's why the women give testimonies. That's why on Sunday nights, we open it up. Who would, if anyone would like to volunteer to pray. From time to time, we have a woman that volunteers to pray. That's great. That's fine. That's wonderful. Um, as long as she is exercising that right within the within the, the realm of the authorities in her life, permission and blessing upon it. She approaches through her authorities. That's what we mean by that. Second point. Hair length is a natural means by which gender roles are reinforced. We see that in this text, and we ought to apply it. Beginning heavily in the years of the teen rebellions of the 60s and 70s, the issue of hair length expanded as both men and women sought to rebel against their parents in any and every way possible, including casting off the norms of culture as it pertained to hair length. Today, it's not uncommon to see men with long hair and women with a very short boycott type hair. But the Bible says that this isn't natural. Paul states that it is a shame for men to have long hair and a shame for women to be shorn. He furthermore states that long hair on women is a particular grace that naturally testifies of female submission. Is it any wonder then? I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you haven't, let me put a couple of pieces together for you. Is it any wonder that female homosexuals, by and large, have boy cuts? Have you ever noticed that? That female homosexuals, by and large, have boy cuts? And if, if they don't, then it's quite regular that when they get into a relationship with another female, one of them is acting in the male gender role. One of them has the boy cut. One of them wears the manly looking clothes. And it happens with men, sodomites as well, that one of them takes on a far more feminine role because it's built into us. Because as the women cast off all expectations of authority, one of the ways that they physically manifest that is by cutting their hair to look like a man's. Isn't that interesting? Now, I do not say this to imply that you are sinning if you are a woman that has short hair. I'm not saying that at all. There are many short haircuts on women that are becoming. They have many practical advantages. And they are very feminine. That's not what I'm preaching about. That's not what the text is talking about. Very, you know, feminine, the feminine grace in a short haircut is not wrong. However, as believers, we would do well to avoid a situation where our Christian women are breaking down the barriers of distinction between men and women as it pertains to to hair. So, you know, you have the woman that has the curly hair or the hair that curls under. You know, okay, looks very feminine. No one's going to look at that and say, "Is is that a man or a woman? That's not what we're talking about. But you would do well to guard the hair of the women in this church, of your family, against masculinity. 
against a look of masculinity as Paul presents it because it's unnatural as he presents it in the text. In other words, it is right and appropriate for women to avoid masculine identity, to break down the barriers of identity, whether that's hair or even in many ways in clothing. Doesn't mean women can't wear pants. Just wear pants that that just just look in such a manner that you're not breaking down the barriers of distinction between man and woman. Similarly, it is biblically right to and appropriate that Christian men maintain short masculine haircuts. In much the same way that a woman's hair reflects her willing submission, a man's hair naturally reflects his willing leadership and authority, which is the what God has ordained for him. It's what God has ordained for us men. And our hair length and styles, they are non-essential. But it is a non-essential, simple, external way by which we are able to testify of biblical submission and our understanding of biblical distinctions. So while it's non-essential, as believers who desire to do all things under the glory of God, let's just do it. Let's just make it something that we do to the praise and the glory of God. Third and finally, Paul's application was and is culturally specific. Paul makes it very clear both at the beginning, he calls it um, the ordinance, that word meaning oral tradition, and at the end he calls it a custom that this particular issue deals with an area of Christian liberty and not an explicit command. And it is furthermore evident that the concept of head coverings was a cultural method whereby the women were able to show their submission in the assembly and still participate. Now, the United States does not have any specific customs whereby female submission is manifest. There are various ways that various families have chosen to reflect cultural submission. For some, they expect that in the assembly a woman would wear a skirt as a form of female identity and biblical submission. For others, they expect their daughters to grow out long hair, very long hair, as a sign of biblical submission and recognition of biblical distinctions. For others, head coverings are worn, aren't they? We see um, many who culturally have chosen to wear a head covering, sometimes always, sometimes only in the assemblies. I've known churches where the women only have to wear head coverings when the prayers start. They put the head covering on for the prayer and then they take it off again. And so there are many different ways in which this plays out. Now, we require none of these things at Legacy Baptist Church as a show of submission. And perhaps that's reflected in the fact that many of the women are uncomfortable praying in the assembly. We, only, we, we have very few women uh, that are comfortable praying in the assembly, and I don't know that there is a woman that has ever prayed in the assembly who has not first come up to me and asked me about it. And that's right and that's good because the women of this church are concerned with biblical submission. And as we close today, I'd like to close on two different points. First of all, I would encourage you, fathers, husbands, to express verbally your approval as it pertains to the women in this church, to contribute. 
in order that they might feel comfortable doing so. And I think that as we in this church are willing to express that in a manner that is not reflecting the women usurping authority, but rather the women um, ministering or praying under the authority of the man, that there will be a a great barrier that is broken down in discomfort there. But I'd like to suggest perhaps something else as well. If you are uncomfortable still, if the women are uncomfortable, and certainly if you're uncomfortable praying, I know there's many of the men that are uncomfortable praying as well, but if it's something you'd like to do but are uncomfortable doing it, I might suggest that you could do this. You could ask the male authority that you have, whether that's your father, your husband, or if you have neither in the church, um, your pastor, to perhaps if you would desire to contribute through prayer, and you feel uncomfortable doing it or desire to reflect that submission, to ask that male authority to stand with you so that you would stand and pray and he would stand with you as a show of personal support that he is reflecting his desire and willingness for you to pray or to speak in the assembly while at the same time you feeling comfortable that you're doing it in a submissive manner. So I would suggest that that might be a way for you to um, solve that conundrum if, if you as women are still uncomfortable with the submissive issue. And of course, you could always take further steps. You could get a head covering if you wanted. or Whatever you would like to do standards-wise, that's fine. We, are, as of yet, are not going to establish anything at Legacy Baptist Church Firm for how a woman is to reflect submission. But we ought to know the principle is there, that a woman should come into the assembly and as she preaches or, or preaches, as she prays or as she speaks, her heart ought to be doing so in a, in a submissive manner and it ought to reflect submission toward her father, toward her husband, toward the elders of the church. So those will be our three points today as we apply. Women have the privilege of participating in corporate worship as long as a submissive, uh, uh, as a submissive woman, excuse me, under male authority. Number two, hair length is a natural means by which gender roles are reinforced. And third and finally, Paul's application was and is culturally specific. If you have any questions on any of this, I know it's a kind of a confusing issue. I, I hope that I helped clarify it in some way today. But if you have any questions, please come see me, and we'll be sure that we get those uh, questions answered. Let's pray together.